Okay, so we're going to begin. Just to review what we've done in the past couple of weeks. So, for those of us who were here at the very first year, at the very first year, I laid down the groundwork of what I believe to be the approach a person needs to take when they learn Gemara. Um, and we've been building off of that in all the subsequent weeks. In the second week, we just gave a number of examples. We illustrated that approach, that mahalach, by learning a few Mishnayos with Gemaras that followed that. Um, last week, we were a little bit more ambitious. I actually presented everyone who was at this year with a Gemara. I kind of went into sleep mode myself and allowed everybody who was at this year to learn the Gemara on their own and to be able to answer the questions that were on the page to see how well that approach is adapting. And I think that we can move on now to, again, doing the same thing, taking the same approach as we start to learn a Masechta. You know, I don't know if we'll continue learning through this Masechta, but again, here we have the very first, pi- first page in Shnayim Al-Khazim. This is the very first daf in Masechta's Bab Metziah. And I would like to learn, again, together with everybody, the first Mishnah with the first Amud of Gemara, and to show how, with using our approach to learning Mishnayis, and using our approach to learning Gemara, we'll see how really the Gemara does exactly what we expect it to do. And again, what, what I would like to ultimately accomplish with this is that everybody could feel more comfortable with it. Now, I don't want to stop the shear every time to have people do, do, the, do the exercise on their own because time is very precious. And I'm sure you can find time during the week to be able to do this, to practice this approach. The idea over here, I mean, I did it last week. Again, the point was to be able to allow everybody to do it and then... I would review it and show it, but again, we don't have enough time for that every week. So let's learn the Mishnah. We're going to learn the Mishnah here. I'm, I'm not going to learn to the end of the Mishnah. If you look in the English part, I pulled out... I, I, I also feel very strongly that when, when I'm giving a shir, maybe a shir in Basar Vachalov or Hilcha Shabbos, so then to pull a little piece out of a Gemara and to get just the text and the English and to put it on the page, I'm fine with that. But at a certain point in time when we're actually learning Gemara... It is, that, it is a step further to learn it from the actual Gemara. And now they have advanced Gemaras already with, with punctuation and, uh, and the kudos with vowels in it, which make it easier. And I mean, the, the Gemara that I have on my computer doesn't have that. You'll have to, excuse me, I don't have that Gemara that I can put on the page. Maybe I should have photocopied it. But this Gemara is the typical Vagshal Gemara. This has the Tzura Sadaf. It's important to be able to learn the Gemara from the Tzura Sadaf. And I mean, the structure of a Gemara, I think, I think everyone here is familiar with it. You have the Gemara in the middle. You'll have Rashi is always going to be at the, at the, at the, at the binding, and Tosfos is always going to be at the outside of the page, the border of the page. That's how it always is. So it's not right or left. Rashi will always be at the binding, any Masechta that has Rashi. And then you have Tosfos on the, on the outer side of the page by the border, and, you know, again, the, the more advanced Gemaras get, the more that the publishers of the Gemara add on the side of the page, the more that they think is going to be helpful to the learner to see little references and citations on the side. So this Gemara is not that new, but it does have the Psukim. Um, I guess I'm calling this fairly new, but it's not so new anymore. It's probably uh, 15 or 20 years old that they started actually putting the whole Pasuk on the side, 
Whereas the Masara Sashas used to, used to just give a little citation, a little reference. Oh, this is in uh, Shmo's Chafez. Go find it. And Shmo, open up a Chumash and find it. Now they got resourceful and they put the actual Pasuk on the side. But again, I think it's important to be able to learn this from a Gemara. And inevitably, when you do that, there are going to be mistakes that you're going to make just because there's no punctuation. Just today, for example, I was, uh, I was teaching Gemara to my class and and I did the same thing. I gave them the Gemara, told them to find the Harusa, learn it with their Harusa, and then we we'll learn it together. And the, the, pas, the Gemara quoted the Pasuk of Kidvar Hashem Baza. Now, I mean, th- these are mistakes that I make because I'm familiar with the Pasuk, but every single student, without exception, said Kidvar Hashem Baza. Right? The word of Hashem is with this. Right? But the word is Baza, which means disgraced. The matter of Hashem has been disgraced. It is an entirely new Pasuk. These are mistakes that are natural to make when you learn from a Gemara without Nikudos, without the punctuation. Now what happens is, sometimes from the context of Gemara, you say, hold on a second, something doesn't make sense over here. And that's where looking at the Pesukim on the side, or relearning the Gemara, helps you figure that out. So again, this is something we'll have to go through as we learn through the Gemara with the Tzura Sadaf, with the actual form of the page, but we'll, we'll get to that. So let's, let's learn this Mishnah here. You're welcome to look in the English, but I would encourage you to look along with the, with the Hebrew. I'm going to go through it slowly. It's not going to be Dafyomi style. We're going to go through it slowly to help us understand what we're doing here. So here we have our scenario. The scenario that we always ask ourselves what is the scenario? The Mishnah begins immediately by painting the scenario for us. What's the scenario? There are two people who walk in to a based in, and they are holding on to a garment. Okay, talus, we generally refer to a talus as something we wear when we daven, tzitzis, but talus can mean any garment. There are two people who are ochazin. They are grabbing onto a talus. Now, Zeomer, one of them says, Ani mitzasiyah, I found it. Omer, and this person claims, Ani I found it. So now we have the very first issue here. We have a dispute about who found this talus. Right away, when you're learning this, does any question come to you? Is there anything that bothers you about the Mishnah? So to me, something does bother me. Because I already want to know, why do I care how you acquired this talus. Why is it relevant that you found it? The relevant point here is that you own it. Why, are, why is it important that you claim? Why is it important that the Mishnah claims that it was a found item? Now, this is not going to make me lose sleep, but right away when I learned this Mishnah, I'm already preparing myself for the Gemara differentiating between somebody who made it somebody who found it, or somebody who bought it, or somebody who got it as a gift. Now, whether all those questions come up in the Gemara, will, will, time will tell. But the idea over here is, number one, you have to notice that if the, if the Mishnah is going to specify, Ze'omer I, I, the this person says, I found it. The other person says, I found it. So you already need to understand that you're going to prepare yourself for at some place in the Gemara, the Gemara is going to highlight that there is something unique about finding a talus, which is different than buying the talus. Then the the Mishnah goes on. Ze'omer, this person claims, Kula Shali. 
It's entirely mine. V'zeh Omer, and this person claims, Kula Shali. It's entirely mine. Now again, this is part of the issue. The scenario we have, two people are grasping onto a garment and arguing about it. What's the argument? Two claims are made. Number one, I found it. The other person says, I found it. The second detail is, I own it. Now, does anything bother you about this? Again, it's not terribly bothersome, but it's curious. If you found it, I probably can conclude that you're claiming that you own it. So why does the Mishnah now need to go ahead and repeat, I found it and I own it? So clearly this, even without learning the Gemara, a curious person could already ask themselves, why do I need to have these two details very clearly specified in the Mishnah? There must be something unique about finding it, and there must be something unique about claiming that it's entirely mine. So that's scenario we have, and we have the issue. The scenario is two people are holding on to it. The issue is that there's a dispute over who found it, and there's also a dispute over who owns it. Now, Zeyi Shava, this person will swear, She'ein lo ba pachot michetzia. But before we do this, what was the next step we always ask, ask ourselves? What's your default position? What would you say? If you didn't know any Torah, and you were asked to litigate this case, you were asked to determine how do you figure out what the halach would be in this case, what would you say? Now, I'm assuming that there could be a number of answers that come up over here, but the first thing you should do is stop and think to yourself, how would I rule in this case? Whatever your conclusion is, keep that in your mind, and then go on and read. Zeyishava, this person must take an oath, he swears, she'ein lo ba pachot michetzia, that he does not own less than half. And the Mishnah goes on and says, and the other person will swear, take an oath, this person does not have less than half. So again, immediately you have to ask yourself, that's an interesting oath to take. It's not consistent with the claim. My claim is that I own the whole thing. Why are you asking me to take a shavua, to take an oath, that I don't own less than half? Why can't I just take an oath that I own the whole thing? In other words, if my claim was, if I walked into Bastin claiming that I owned the whole thing, then why can't you push me to take responsibility to back up my claim that in, indeed my claim is true, that I own the whole thing? Now, what would anybody say? Just log- logically, why, why would the Mishnah say that? Well, there's no way to resolve it if they both take that same oath. Okay, so Richard is saying that we can't we can't come to a resolution. In other words, we are, we are results-driven. And the result, we want to have a positive result that we could come up with something. So therefore, we say, you, you swear that you, you don't own less than half. But is there anything more compelling about why they can't actually take the oath to back up with their that, claim? You know, definitely one of them would be lying. You're opening it up for someone to lie. Beautiful. Based in cannot create a scenario where they are asking one person, or maybe both people, to certainly lie. In other words, in this case, the Basin cannot create a scenario 
where both people take an oath and the truth can't be consistent with both of those oaths. So therefore, the Mishnah needs to be able to say, while we would love to push you as far as we can to back up your claim with an oath, we, as a Bastin, cannot create a detrimental or catastrophic circumstance where we are having a, a Shavuot Sheker take place in front of Bastin. Okay, so now this is all something which can be concluded logically, can be concluded logically based on just learning the Mishnah. And that is perhaps explains the interesting terminology. I don't own less than half. Why don't you just say that I own half? Why can't the guy swear that I own half? Because that's not what he claims. He doesn't claim he owns half. So why would the guy say I own half? I don't own half. I own the whole thing. So you have to find some type of medium over here where the guy is not going to contradict his original claim, but we can't either create a scenario where automatically one person's going to lie. So the compromise is that I don't own less than half. Now, what we just did right now is we really predicted so much of what's going to come up in the Gemara ahead of us. And then when we learned the Gemara, it's going to make sense. Let's go a little bit further. What's the halacha now after they take that shvuah? Viach loku. They'll split it. Now, this viach loku is something which opens up a massive discussion. This discussion is going to span far beyond the Gemara. But why is that the appropriate resolution, that they should split it? Right? Why, don't, why don't we come... There's, nothing, there's no other resolution we can come up with? So I don't want to go through all of this right now, but the Tosfus does bring down a number of other possibilities. And in other words, let's, let's say maybe they should just fight it out. Sometimes something is not resolvable. And the psak of Bastin cannot come to a good resolution. So the Bastin says, listen, fight it out. Now, fight it out sometimes could be physically, sometimes it could mean you could fight it out by you know, arguing it out with each other until one of you ultimately concedes. But there are cases when the Bastin says, we're being masalic ourselves, we're going to move away from this because we can't come up with, up with a resolution. There are cases when the basin says we can't come up with a, with a resolution. We can't allow the two of you to fight this out. So you know what? No one will get it. We'll keep it. We'll just put it into a safety deposit box until Leo and Avi comes. And he'll tell us who it belongs to. There are cases when the Basin uses their discretion. Shuda to Dayani. In other words, the Basin uses their discretion to try to figure out who they think is the rightful owner. So why, why splitting it? That's a whole discussion in and of itself. But again, this should be something you should ask yourself, would I ever have concluded that the proper resolution to a case like this would be to split it? If the answer is yes, so good, your, your, your line of thinking is consistent with the Mishnah. If not, you have to ask yourself, if I never would have come up with this resolution to split it, so then why does the Mishnah say to split it? That helps you predict both the Gemara and, as we pointed out in the very first chair, when the Gemara does not address the question, expect the question to be brought up in the Tosfas or one of the Rishonim. Okay, next case. Zeu Merkulashali. Now, the assumption is that the first claim is still the same. They both claim that they found it. 
But the claims are slightly different. Ze'omer kulishli, this person says it's entirely mine. The ze'omer chetzishli, this person says, no, we both own half of it. Okay, so one person says it's entirely mine. I own the whole thing. The other person says, you own half and I own half. So now, what would I think? What would I think would be the halacha in this scenario? Now, let's see what the Mishnah says. Your default position. In other words, keep your default position in your mind. What would you say is the halacha in this case? The Mishnah says, Ha'omer kulashuli, he who claims that he owns the whole thing, Yishava, he takes an oath, She'ein lo ba pachos mishlosha He does not own anything less than three quarters. Ha'omer chetzishuli, and the one, who claims that half of this garment is mine, Yishava, he takes an oath, Shein lo pachos He does not own less than a quarter. Now why would this be the case? Because essentially, how much are they fighting about? They are fighting over a half. Everybody agrees that one half belongs to, let's just call him Ruvain. Okay? Everybody agrees that one half belongs to Ruvain. Ruvain says half is mine, and so Ruvain says the whole thing is mine, so he certainly claims that one half is his. Shimon says half is mine. He agrees that one half belongs to Ruvain. So that half is not subject to this dispute. The only half of the talus that's subject to this dispute is the second half. Okay, is that really a novelty? Is there anything new in this case? Essentially, you're just saying that when there is a fight over a garment, you each swear about half of the fight and you split it. So now why is this necessary to be, to be repeated? We couldn't have figured this out on our own. If you understand the first half of the Mishnah, then the second half of this case should be obvious. In other words, when you become a real thinking person and you've come to the understanding of why the first half should be true, so then, think a little bit further, use critical thinking to understand that whenever there is a dispute over a garment, what do we do? We take this interesting shavua, this interesting oath, which doesn't contradict our claim, but won't have us both ultimately producing a false shavua in Basin. And then we split what we're fighting about. Okay, so now you're going to have to give a case. Now, what if someone says, I own one-eighth, and the other person says, I own seven-eighths. Are we going to have to do the same thing? The mission doesn't go on for infinity and describe this, so why was it necessary to do this in the first place? I'm not sure that the second case you can deduce just from learning the first case. Okay. If it came, if it came, if it had another case with an eighth afterwards, then you could say, okay, this, this is the way that it goes. Why, why, why not? Uh, be, uh, because um, theoretically, you could apply the same the same half standard to both because one of them is still claiming to own the whole thing and the other one can and you, you, you can still say okay so this one is at most going to own a half because that's all he's claiming but the other one we might make him swear that he only owns up to that he doesn't own less than a half right. in other words it's not it, it, I mean I, the way, I would just add on to what you're saying that the, from the fact that we're including the other half in this first guy's Shavua, why is it relevant? Why don't we just say, okay, half number one is, is out of this discussion, and why doesn't person A swear, I don't own less than half of the disputed area, and person B, 
doesn't swear that he owns, he should swear, I own nothing less than half of this disputed area. Why are we even discussing right. the first half? So that really cons- coincides with, with what Ari is saying, that clearly we're still including that first half in this discussion. But that should lead to you asking a question, why? Why are we doing that? Right? Again, the, all of this is, all that we're doing over here is applying our critical thinking to the Mishnah, which will prepare us when we get to the Gemara to have all this information in front of us. Now, we didn't even get into this yet, but Shnaim Ochzin with, with what? What are they holding on to? A garment of clothing. Is it specifically a garment? Would the halach be different if it was not a garment? Would the halach be different if it was, I don't know, a, a, a real estate? If it was any type of movable object? Well, we kind of get our answer when we go on to the next part. The second half of the Mishnah addresses what happens if two people are riding on an animal. Oh, One person is riding it. Another person is leading it. What happens here? So we are repeating the case now to be talking about a case of an animal. Same halacha is true. Each person takes an oath that he owns no less than half. They split the animal. Now, Okay, that's, that's another halacha. I don't want to get into that right now. But now we have to ask ourselves a question. Why would I say that halacha is any different when it comes to an animal? How many, how many cases do we need to illustrate the same point that when two people are arguing over the possession of a given item, that the process we'll take is find a creative way to come up with a shvua, with an oath, where nobody's gonna be, nobody will automatically be lying, and then split it. So again, you already predicted that in the Gemara, the Gemara is going to have to ask this question. Okay, let's go into the Gemara a little bit. I don't know. We're not going to finish the whole Gemara now. But again, what I'm, and I think I say this every week. What I'm doing here is, is I'm trying to create a process of learning Mishnayis. We are when you learn the Mishnah in a certain way, then the Gemara flows very easily afterwards. Let's look at the Gemara now. What's the first? Question the Gemara asks right away after the word Gimel Mem. Why do you need to have, why does the Tan of the Mishnah, the one who, the author of this Mishnah, why did he need to include the fact that they both claimed that I found it and then go on to say, Why do you have to say both of those things? Just write one of them. In other words, why can't the mission say, Two people enter a basin, grab, grabbing onto a talus. Now, pick your choice. Either say, Period. Or don't write that. Write, Why do you need to have all this detail in the Mishnah that each person claims I found it, and each person says they own it. And again, when we learned this Mishnah, we asked this question because it, it, was, it struck us right away. The Mishnah is providing a lot of detail about the issue in this scenario. Why? So the Gemara says something very interesting. Chadakatani. 
The Mishnah does say one. In other words, the Mishnah doesn't say both. Excuse me? The Mishnah does say both. Right, now, we have to now go a little bit further. What the Tana meant to write was, the person claims, I found it, and it's mine. The other person says, I found it, and it's mine. Now, you shouldn't be satisfied with this answer, because the, the Mishnah doesn't say that. And that's why we're going to see very soon. I mean, the connotation is very different. Okay, I think I the mean, connotation... You sit there and say, it's mine, the other person said, or I found it, and the first... The second person says, I found it. And then they say, it's mine. And then, the second, right. and then Ruvain says, it's mine. So then you're, as opposed to, I found it, and it's mine. So which one, is, which one sits, sits better with you? More, the second one. The second one. The second one, where right. you say, I found it, and it's mine. Right. And that's what the Gemara is trying to do. But the problem just is that the Mishnah didn't do that. In other words, had the Mishnah said... I think we, would have, we wouldn't have had as much of a question. The Mishnah went ahead and reiterated it. It sounds like it's two different things. In other words, claim number one, I found it. Oh, you have the same claim? Oh, by the way, let me just let you know, it's mine. The Gemara is going to ask this, but again, as a person who's learning the Gemara, you're going to say to yourself, what do you mean, Chada Katani? You really said one, which is, I found it and it's mine. There would have been no difficulty just writing that in the first place. So the fact that the Mishnah didn't write that, it wasn't a typo. It wasn't a mistake. So the Gemara is simply answering that can't be adequate. It can't suffice. It can't be enough. Now, why did the Gemara do that? We're going to see. But ultimately, the first step is acknowledging your question that you had when you read the Mishnah, which is, what is the necessity of writing Ze'omer and then reiterating, this person says it's mine, that person says, the person says it's mine. But by saying it's mine, does it automatically mean that he owns it? You can say, I found something, but it doesn't mean you claim it. You found something, it may not be yours. So what are you doing here? Why did you come to Basin for? So that means, so, no, so that's my question on the Mishnah. When you're saying Zemitziah, why are you saying Zemitziah? Who says Excellent. it's yours? Great, I mean, that's, that's a great question. And, and I think that that's a question that needs to be asked. And that really gets to the next point. It seems like there's something unique about the fact that you found it. Oh, that's, okay? yeah. it. It seems like there's a uniqueness to finding something over buying it. There's something unique about finding something over receiving it as a gift. There's something unique about finding something over receiving it as an inheritance. Right? In other words, there is clearly a very important aspect to the fact that you found it over buying it or acquiring it in any other way. We'll have to see soon what that difference is. But let's, let's just get to, just so you, you should understand that I, the Gemara is going to address this, you'll see in the last line of this page, Reisha b'metziah, the first half of the mission is talking about a case where it was found, the safe of b'mekach The end of the mission is talking about when you bought it. So hold on a second, maybe our assumption in the Mishnah was wrong. We thought the intro in the Mishnah, which said, Omer was like an umbrella statement on all the cases, but that was simply an assumption that we made. But as we continue to ask questions on the Mishnah, and we ask ourselves, what's with the repetition over here? What's the Chiddush in the second case? 
Then you say, you know what, maybe my original assumption that I made, that any time the Mishnah repeats more detail, it's just basically illustrating the case another time, you know, actually, that assumption was wrong. It's a new case. So yes, there was uniqueness to finding it. And there is uniqueness to buying it. Now, of course, the Gemara is going to have to ask, what's the uniqueness? And that's why the last word on the page says, Vitzricha. You need to have both cases because there is going to be a difference. What that difference is, I would actually challenge you to think of, the, of that difference on your own. Think of the difference. And try to figure out what is the difference between buying it and finding it. We'll get to that soon. But I just want to, I want to end tonight with what the Gemara at least says over here about why, why we're focusing so much on the two different iterations of how this person found it. So the Gemara says, let's go, let's go further. It does say one, which is, Ze Omer, the Gemara now elaborates. Ze Omer, I found it, but Kulashli, it's entirely mine. The Ze Omer, this person says, I found it, but Kulashli. So now the, now the Mishnah asks the obvious question, which we've been asking. This is essentially what we've been asking the whole time. Why do you need to have a case where a person says, I found it, and it's mine? Isn't that obvious? Isn't that why he came here? Isn't that what the fight is about? If you aren't claiming that you own it, what's the discussion? It's obvious. We're smart people. We could recognize if two people walk into a courthouse arguing about a talus, they're clearly arguing who owns it. Why, why the need to actually be very clear, I own it and it's mine? So Gemara says, Itana Animitsasiya, if I would have just said, I found it, Havi Amina, I would have thought, my Mitsasiya, what does Mitsasiya mean? Ri'isiha. I saw it first. In other words, the claim is not clear. When a person says, I found something, maybe they just meant they saw it. Who says you actually acquired it? Now, the Gemara is going to get on a little bit of a tangent over here to show that the Pasuk, it says, umatsaso, umatsaso means it went to your hand. But ultimately, the Gemara's point over here is that in human language, when a person says, I found something, is it a technical term? Or is it just a, a fact? I found it. That if you say, I found something lying in the middle of the street, does that mean that you halachically acquired it? No, it just means I found it. Right? So it's possible that if the Mishnah had not been clear about what animetsasiya, the kula shali, means, I would perhaps have thought if a person simply claims animetsasiya, that seeing a lost item is enough. In other words, I would have derived from this, this Mishnah that when an item is placed in the middle of a public domain, it's ownerless, the owner is no longer here, and I'm the one who finds it, maybe I can acquire that item by just simply seeing it. I found it first. See this all the time, especially with kids. I found it first. I wanted it first. I was going to claim first. I called it, right? I called it. That's the term. I called it. I called it first, right? Maybe seeing it first and calling it, maybe that's enough. So the mission needs to be clear that you found it. Not only did you find it, you also acquired it. So that's the necessity for the two, the two claims. I found it, and I acquired it. Now, 
No, ob, what's, the, what's the obvious question that's going to follow, follow afterwards? So why is it relevant to say you found it? But you should expect now that the Gemara is going to ask that question. And the Gemara does. You have to skip a few lines because the Gemara gets into a little bit of a, of a side point of there. But counting up two, four, six, eight lines before it gets skinny, nine lines, nine lines from the bottom. Velisni Kula Shali. Why don't you just say in the Mishnah, it's mine. Velo Bai Ani Mitzasiya. So the, the Gemara does ask that question. But again, I don't even want to finish the Elman now because that's not the point. The point is not to finish the sugya. The point is to see that when you, learn, when you learn the Mishnah carefully, all the questions that we asked took you through a whole Amr of Gemara. In other words, learning the Mishnah carefully. And you're right, there are Mishnahis all over Shas that are difficult to learn. Get a translation. And if you get stuck on a word, you know, get a Gemara that is easy to read with Nikudos, with punctuation, or get a translation. But don't just quickly read through it Stop after every phrase, every line. What is the point in this line? What's the necessity in this line? When you do that, you took yourself, in most cases, through a whole Amr of Gemara. And I'm not selectively choosing Gemaras to show you this. This is relevant all over Shas. So again, this approach, again, I've, I have said this, I think, every year so far, this approach that you use to learning Mishnayis, to carefully learning Mishnayis, takes you through by a, usually most of the Gemara. So to summarize, Ralph, what do we have here? We have a Mishnah with a, with a scenario. The scenario is clear. The issue, the issue is clear. The claims in the Mishnah are complicated, but they're not too complicated for a person of average intel- intelligence to critically take it apart and ask, why is this necessary? Why is that necessary? Why is it important to talk about a case of someone finding it? Why do we have to repeat it two times? Why have another case? In all these cases, questions that we asked, just learning through the Mishnah, we're able to answer enough of them on our own with our default position. And then, if our default position is too obvious, we should expect the Gemara to say Peshitta. And then, if it repeats a halacha, you want to know why is it repeated. And again, I skipped a little bit to show you the Gemara does address that because we can't Unfortunately, we can't spend all night learning this parak. But yes, you'll see if it's repeated. So then, it must be one case is talking about one case. Another case is bringing in another halacha. One is talking about finding a lost item. Another one's talking about buying an item. Why would it be different? It's not on this page of Gemara, but I think we could all think about it. People think differently about things that they find and things that they buy on both sides of the, of the, of the aisle, Right? If it's a found, it's something which is found. Hey, listen, it was found. Big deal. It was an item which was found. It was it was like public property. It's much different than buying something. He didn't spend any money on it. So maybe I could, I could be a little bit less honest, or maybe the halakhas are a little bit, a little bit more lenient. Or maybe the opposite is true. When I paid for it, I paid for it, so it's mine. What do I care how I paid for it? I paid for it. The guy got my money. So the other person won't be able to buy it? He'll go to another store and buy it. It was on sale? He'll wait for another sale to come up. I bought, I bought it. It's perfectly mine. Right? In both cases, using, using the, the Gemara does say this, but these svaros, these ideas, are not foreign. These are logical conclusions that you could come up with.
So we'll stop here for tonight, and um, we'll continue next week. Thank you. Thank you.